What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right. What's up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today, I am joined by one of my good friends, Christopher Guype. Um, Christopher is one of the, I would say probably a top rated estate planning attorney. Um, he used to have his own firm. They got bought last year. And so I'm really excited to have Chris here. So Chris, thanks for joining us today, man. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and uh, excited to chat with you. Been Me too, too long. So today we're going to really dive into asset protection. I think it's something that you talk about and hit on a lot on Twitter. And I've written a bunch of posts and had a bunch of podcasts on estate planning. And I think asset protection kind of goes hand in hand with it, but it is different. And I don't think people think about it enough. And so I'm really excited to hop in the topic. But before we get there, let's just kind of start with a little bit more about you and your story. Uh, sure. Um, and I'll do my best to keep this brief. It's always, always going to be a problem. If you ask me an open-ended question like that, I can talk forever. Um, but, uh, I like, like you said, I spent a lot of time talking about asset protection, partially because of, you know, my story. Um, I never intended on practicing in this area of law, I wanted to be a litigator in the courtroom. Uh, that was my dream and that was my goal. And then I had a mentor of mine pass away. Um, and that was the first time I got exposed to uh, the really dark kind of underbelly of estate planning and not having asset protection. He was a homeowner. He was a partner at a law firm. Um, in terms of all of the metrics attorneys aspire to and want to hit, he kind of had them all, you know, really nice five-star vacations, the whole deal. Um, and when he passed away, he didn't have an estate plan and he didn't have asset protection, which led to... Uh, I actually just resolved his case um, for, it was six years in litigation Dang. over his assets. When all said and done, the, all the attorneys involved, uh, you know, got paid really well. Um, I wasn't an attorney. I represented as the, the personal representative of the estate. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there, was, there's, there wasn't a whole lot left over. You know, apart from a couple of things, right? He had a defined benefit plan, which he set up for not estate planning, or uh, asset protection purposes, it was just, hey, you know, you can create your own tax plan, yep. right, to help shelter some taxes. And that was essentially what his family got. But, you know, he had a couple million dollar salary, uh, no life insurance, no nothing. And so that's kind of how I got into this space. And I spend a lot of time talking about asset protection, because when you don't have proper asset protection, one, it will either kill your wealth while you're alive or when you're gone, if you don't have it, you know, that's the one the creditors will come and they'll pick out your estate. And, you know, next thing you know, you spend a half a million dollars in legal defense fees and you have really nothing to show for it. Um, and so that's how I got into this space. I, I started my firm five years ago, end of last year, uh, because my clients are, are so mobile now, right? I have clients moving from California to uh, you know, greener pastures, or at, at least in terms of oh, taxes, right? <laughs> yeah, Texas, Florida, all of those places. With, you know, yeah, all, all of those places. Um, I entered into a strategic partnership with a larger firm, uh, Barth Calderon, and uh, now I, you know, can help clients in, in multiple states. And um, yeah, so yeah, it's been awesome. That's super smart. So the goal there really is like, hey, we're going to be in different states. So now I can still kind of go the general ideas, not advice, right? We'll, we'll throw that mm -hmm. compliance there for you. But the ideas of what they should do, partner with another firm who has people in that state who then can go and act what needs to be done because you're not registered in those states. Yeah. So I have, you know, at, at the firm, we have uh, attorneys licensed in, I want to say 12 different states okay. um, in all of the big ones, at least, you know, where yeah. my clients are moving to. And so, you know, I, I partner and it's the same exact thing. I'm not signing the official documents, but I can create the overall plan, the, the architecture, so to speak. And then I can have one of my partners go ahead and bless the plan, make sure we're in compliance with state law and all those things. And, and I don't have to refer it out to someone else. So my clients still work with me. 
Um, I'm still kind of the point of communication. It's just now I have a, another attorney who's working on making sure we're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's in, in, in terms of the state um, law. Yeah, in terms of the state law and the individual state requirements. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Well, awesome. That's a really good setup for you, to be honest, because that's the issue we hear all the time is like, oh, you know, they move. Now I can't do it anymore. Um, and actually like wealth.com, the company that I work with, what happened is their their CEO sold his last company, did his estate plan, decided to move about a month after. And his estate plan attorney was like, yeah, you're going to have to redo basically your entire estate plan now. And he was like, oh, this is just horrible. Why didn't I think about the fact that I was moving before? And then his estate plan attorney was like, oh, I can't work with you in this other state now. So now you have to go find somebody else because he wasn't a big national firm that had those capabilities, which is definitely a pain point. So I think it was a smart move by you for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's worked out really well so far. Um, well, but good. yeah, you know, I had, I had several of those conversations with clients. So like, oh, I'm going to Texas. I'm like, oh, I'm so excited for you. Um, I can't help you there. Uh, at least, you know, and now I can. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, cool. So let's kind of hop into the topic today. And, um, you know, when you first hear about this whole topic, like where does your mind first go is like the important pieces of great asset protection? Are you talking about like individual tools or? Uh, I, I think if honestly, wherever you're like, somebody comes into you and says like, what does good asset protection look like? Where do you start the conversation at? Obviously it's, do you own a business? Do you own a home? Like, let's just assume that they have a bunch of things going on. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's, it's funny that you ask it that way. Cause I've never had a client ask it about it. Usually most people, they're completely oblivious to asset protection in general. Yep. And if they're coming into me and if they're coming to speak with me, it's usually for something else. Um, it's for tax planning or, uh, you know, maybe estate planning. Um, and so, you know, you caught me slightly off guard because I'm like, I don't know if I've ever had a client come in and just yeah, say, hey, I, wouldn't I, say I want to do asset protection. Yeah, I wouldn't say anybody asked for it. It's kind of like I was talking to somebody earlier today and they're like, you know, do your clients come in and say like, what tax credits apply to me? And it's like, no, they don't. They're like, I want tax planning, right? They're not going to think of it this way. But I feel like your mind instantly when somebody comes in, they have a lot of wealth is like, oh, they have no asset protection. Where does your mind go next? Um, so for me, it's always going to start with uh, getting a better understanding of the client, right? Like first, you, you have to have the, the metrics, you have to have the data. Um, and so when you're looking at someone's, you know, uh, personal financial statement, which is basically just supposed to be a one balance page, sheet. one sheet, balance sheet. Yep. Um, it is learning and better understanding why they made the decisions that they made. Because for most times, um, and in, in most cases, you're going to find that although they may have engaged in some basic estate planning, some, you know, preliminary tax planning, the underlying legal structures and the underlying um, business considerations have been completely forgotten. And so for me, a lot of times it's going to be um, in where my mind naturally goes, if I was kind of treating this like a client is first, you know, isolating and identifying areas of risk, because okay. people don't realize that when you are starting a business, whether, it, you know, it could even be a size side business, whether you're a content creator, we actually just saw a huge litigation initiated against some uh, um, content creators in the financial space. Um, yeah. I don't know I if you saw that. that. Yeah. There's like six or so names of people. They're like giving investment advice mm -hmm. and they ended up getting trouble for it. Yeah. And so you're seeing in, and so there's kind of this rise in, in, I guess um, probably more so than any time in history of people starting their own businesses, usually yep, in the form sure. of content creation. Um, and you have kind of a ton of coaches teaching you how to do that. And there's a ton of information out there, but no one's teaching you how to protect yourself if you get into hot water or to avoid getting in hot water altogether. Yeah. And so for me, uh, it starts with like a basic understanding of, hey, what are the, what structures are in place, if anything? Because when we're doing asset protection, we're effectively using the laws and what the laws allow to shield and protect your assets. People have been yeah. doing it for since the beginning of time. That's why we have things such as C-Corps, S-Corps, um, LLCs. LLCs. Those yeah. are all designed to limit your personal liability when you're doing business outside you know, with the world. Some and, types of trust as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's usually kind of phase two. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if we're looking at trust, you're going to tend to have a higher net worth. 
And so, uh, I mean, usually kind of the first starting, the first stepping stone is, you know, do we have basic business structures in place, right? Whether it's a LLC, sure. Yeah. Um, in, you know, so that, that'll be one of the things that we look at first is identifying the under, underlying structure of the business, because even amongst LLCs, S Corp, C Corps, there are more protective structures, um, even amongst those three, right? Um, C Corps are awesome and they're amazing. And they're kind of the gold standard. If you ever in, intend to sell to a private equity company, outside funding, all of those things. Um, but they're also a very big liability for people. Because most people don't understand that if you're sued in a lawsuit, your stock can be seized in that judgment, right? So if you have a judgment against you, if you get in an automobile accident and you've got a high net worth individual and you have a $5 million judgment, you have a C-Corp, if you're unable to pay that judgment or insurance is denied, they can take your shares of ownership in that stock. And now that company becomes their company. And you can effectively lose your company that way. But in certain jurisdictions and, and with a different type, and again, it's going to depend on, because um, that's one thing about asset protection, it's usually never the sole consideration. We never do sure. something just for asset protection purposes. There's going to be other ancillary purposes that we have that go along with it, right? Whether well, that's, yeah. Let's talk about that one that you're talking about right now. Like what are, sure. so that that situation happens, you have a client come in, they have equity in a C-Corp, this is something that we see all the time. What are the things that you start to think about to help protect that? And I think as we go through this conversation, next, maybe we're going to talk about LLCs. Next, we could talk about like, sure. we can go through all of them and be like, well, here's some things to think about that help with the risk. Obviously, yeah. So um, for a C-Corp, so for example, and, and again, it's going to kind of depend on what the underlying business does. Um, so to give you kind of an example, I had a client who's in a ma manufacturing um, and they had a C-Corp. Okay. Real estate's owned by the C-Corp. Equipment is owned by the C-Corp. Payroll is all done through the C-Corp. And essentially and effectively, you have one entity that is controlling all of the pieces, right? Um, and so for something like that, without changing the fact that they are, you know, are a C-Corp, without doing what is called, you know, a, a conversion from a C-Corp to a different entity, because ultimately their end goal was to sell to a private equity firm. So, so C-Corp makes the most sense. So C-Corp C-Corp totally makes, totally makes sense. Um, you can do things within the business itself. So for example, that C-Corp, it doesn't necessarily need to own the real estate that the business is operating out of. You can take the real estate out. You can put the real estate in a separate LLC. That way, if the C-Corp is ever involved in some form of litigation, something that they manufacture, they're getting a lawsuit for a manufacturing defects case, right? You didn't do something appropriately in the manufacturing process. Okay. The C-Corp will then have to litigate that issue, but the real estate is now in a separate entity. And so even if you get a massive judgment against the C-Corp that they can't pay and they have to file bankruptcy for, the building is now owned by a separate entity and the building is now protected from the liability of the C-Corp. And you can do the oh, yeah. same exact thing with the machinery, um, right? So um, if the so machinery is- well, hold on real quick. So you'd set up LLC, you'd own it inside of this LLC, probably lease it over to the company- and then rent it out. Yeah, well, not, 100. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you know, you create a new LLC, you place the real estate in the LLC, and then you execute a leasing agreement. It could be, you know, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year leasing agreement with the corporation. And now, right, because if, if you're leasing an asset, it can't be seized in an underlying lawsuit, right? So this manufacturing company, we have an LLC for the real estate, and then we created a separate LLC that houses all of the equipment that they use to produce, you know, their products, right? So, you know, these CNC equipments, they're hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and they had millions of dollars worth of machinery. You can take those and place those in a separate LLC, right? And you place those in a separate entity. So again, now, if you have a lawsuit against the C-Corp, they can't come in and take the machinery that you use to create your products. And so you further decrease, um, the exposure of the entity by having thoughtful considerations to, hey, why, why do we need to own everything in one single ancillary asset, right? Yeah. Um, and you can break it apart. And again, it still makes it easy to sell. It, you know, it doesn't really change the, the considerations when you're going and you're selling to a private equity firm or you know, exit your business 
you could sell it with the underlying assets or you could sell it without it. Um, and then you right? have, you know, basically a retirement from the income that gets paid to you for, yeah, I have a client who basically same situation, the mortgage will get paid off on the building one year after they sell. And they're going to be collecting, you know, $800,000 a year on no mortgage for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Not a bad situation, or they could choose to sell it if they would want to. Yeah. And so, you know, I actually just walked through that conversation with someone else the other day. It's like, yeah, you can sell the business with the real estate portfolio because this business, they actually have, you know, five buildings um, to produce all their materials. You can sell it and you can kind of bundle it all together when you make the sale to a private equity firm or, you know, two years before you're getting ready to sell it, you sign new leases that extend, you know, the next, like I said, 10, 15, That's smart. 20, 30 years. And now you have guaranteed income from the business that you just built up and sold. Um, yeah. And now you go and like you said, you have cash flow for the rest of your life, probably some for the kids. Um, but that's where I start to look at first is, you know, how and, and you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but you want to identify and isolate areas of risk, right? People are risks. Um, businesses themselves are risks. Uh, real estate, depending on how you hold it uh, and depending on how it's owned. In and of itself, it's not a risk, right? The real estate itself isn't going to hurt someone. Um, you might have premises liability claims, uh, and in which case, so in that same exact scenario, right, by separating the real estate from the C-Corp, now if you have someone who trips and falls on the property, um, you've now inherently protected the machinery of the property, yeah. right? So it's like now, I mean, you're basically taking and utilizing the laws and, and legal structures to better uh, withstand some form of lawsuit wherever it arises. Yeah. Okay. So entity structure is something that you think about C Corp, you know, you have that mm -hmm. liability there. So for smaller business owners, then you start to look at LLC, LLC, taxes, S Corp, partnership, whatever. All of those give you some good protection by having the LLC structure around it, correct? Yeah. Well, so, you know, there's kind of a saying, friends don't let friends operate in sole proprietorships. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see for people who are just starting is that, yeah, hey, I'm starting, whether it's a consultancy firm, they just starting with their first piece of investment property. Um, they do so in a either form of a partnership or as a sole proprietorship. Yep. And in which case, at that point in time, you're not using any legal structures, you're not using any business entities to limit your liability at all. So if you have someone who falls down the stairs in your rental property, because the banister is two inches too low from what code says it should be, okay, now they can sue you, they can sue, uh, and they can attach all your underlying assets to it. Personal yeah. home, your personal income, all of these things are now up for grabs where if you utilize kind of the laws in place, and for example, in that case, really simple structure would be an LLC for your investment property. Yeah. You've limited the exposure to the investment. And they're not getting to your personal home and they're not, they're not getting to the equity within your residence or your bank accounts or even brokerage accounts if you have assets under management. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of, you know, the, the, the first, one of the first things that we look at. Yeah. And that, that's a one I really wanted to talk about because I definitely think we live in the, uh, we're in the generation of everybody should own rentals, which is, you know, good and bad, right? But like everybody that I work with or have worked with comes in with rentals that are not in LLCs. Um, and then I hear all these people say like, well, California, you should never own a rental in LLC because there's an $800 LLC tax. And I'm like, if you're worried simply about an $800 tax, I don't know if owning rentals is probably the business that you should be in because the risk that you face to avoid $800 is massive. And they also don't understand the uh, the cognitive disconnect uh, of what they just said. I don't want to pay $800. And because I don't want to pay $800, I'm going to risk all of the equity in my primary home, which is probably in California. I don't know anyone who's not living in California, actively investing in California real estate. I'm sure there's some are people. Yeah, I don't um, But most of the time it's, you know, I live in California, so I'm going to invest in my community. And so they don't want to pay $100 a year because the filing fee sucks. And so they're like, that's okay. I'm just going to risk the $200,000, dollars $500,000 of equity in my personal residence that's not protected under California. And maybe all your other rentals. Do it. Yeah. 
and and all the all the all the other rental properties yes because you know in there with real estate real estate's a little different because you know when we're looking at things from asset protection you have to separate assets by class right um we treat brokerage accounts different than we would treat businesses and businesses are treated differently than you would treat real estate right when it comes to real estate there's kind of two things that we have to keep in mind is is this a primary residence or is this an investment property that's kind of the first distinction we have to make primary residences depending on where you live in the united states may or may not be protected there's laws in place that are called homestead protection yep um certain states florida, like florida. texas which is again why a lot of clients are moving there and there's you know some famous court cases surrounding those you can have a 20 million dollar home and under Texas and Florida law, the entire amount of equity in that home is going to be protected under Florida and Texas. So, and, and that's what it means by homestead deduction or homestead. Home, homestead protection. We protect okay. the full amount of equity in your primary residence, in your homestead. There are other states where you have limited protection or no protection. So California is one of those limited protection states. It's going to depend on the median home sale value in your zip code. In which case you'll have anywhere from three hundred thousand to six hundred thousand dollars worth of equity that's protected. Okay. In California, that's not a whole lot, right? Especially in places like San Francisco, where I'm at, in Orange County, San Diego, LA. You know, median homes sell one, one two, one five in a lot of those areas. At least. Um, at least, I, I would say that you know, and you know, it's not uncommon to see a twenty million dollar house. Yeah which is one of the things that we have to go into is, okay, you know, if we're talking about real estate and looking at your primary residence, well, first, how much equity do you have in your primary residence, right? Um, do you have a mortgage? Is your house paid off? If your house is paid off, then you have, you know, anything over $600,000 is going to be exposed in an underlying lawsuit. Yeah. And that's why it's really funny when clients say it like, and go through that because oftentimes for, for real estate in California, we, we even go as far as to say, you know, best structure, best protection is going to be create an LLC for each individual property and then have those LLCs ran or held by a holding company or um, series LLC or something. Series LLC can be a little bit more tricky because California doesn't recognize them. Um, But, but, but yes, uh, either a holding company or, you know, that's where, you know, depending on how large the portfolio is, you might look at some of those irrevocable trusts that we talked about to manage uh, the, the underlying portfolio. Um, but it's always funny when people are like, no, I don't want to pay the $800. Okay, well, let's just risk the $3 million worth of equity in all the properties to get well, around. Question, yeah, I totally agree. Question on this one is, is there anything else to do to protect your primary home um, in this situation? Let's say you, I've come across this where people want to set up theirs in LLCs and they say, oh, well, I already own these. You know, I can get the deed transferred, but the bank is telling me that I can't transfer the mortgage into there, or I'm going to have to refinance. And I don't want to refinance from 3% to 7%. I don't think that's, you know, from my experience, a lot of banks are pretty friendly about this and they're used to it. But this is the story that some people have said. I haven't, I haven't had to deal with that with clients, but I've heard that a lot. Yes. Yeah, so generally, and, and I guess I'll answer, I guess, the two questions. One, how to better protect your primary residence. And then two, the issue of creating LLCs and getting the note call, right? Yeah. That's kind of what you're talking on. Um, to better protect your primary residence, it's really going to be preventative. And, and it's almost like uh, you have to have a really good understanding of the legal structure and the legal process in order to do that. So, you know, as a former litigator, one of the first things that you do and what you have to understand as a property owner, as a business owner, as someone that has assets that you're wanting to protect, is that you are already at a disadvantage. Most places in the country, you've probably driven past signs of attorneys advertising on billboards, over the radio. If you're hurt in an auto injury or if you fell, you know, contact this person. You know, you probably have four or five names that you're already thinking of. I know down here in Southern California. You know, there's a laundry list of them. Yeah. And all of those attorneys are willing to take your case on contingency. What does that mean? That means that the the law firm and the attorney is going to front the cost of litigation for the next two to you know one to three years. You're not going to pay them a penny. And if they were give you a recovery, they're going to keep a percentage of it. 
right? So it literally costs it if you are hurt to pursue a lawsuit in order to get you know money back in exchange. It literally costs you nothing. If you're a business owner, if you're a homeowner, um, and you are sued in a lawsuit, there's not an attorney in the country that's going to be willing to accept or represent you on anything other than a fixed or hourly rate, right? It's either going to be a fixed fixed cost, and it's going to say, hey, yeah, it's going to cost you ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. To defend this action, or yes, I'll defend you at an hourly rate of you know three fifty, four hundred, six hundred dollars an hour, and so you're already at a disadvantage. So the one of the best ways you can do to protect your primary residence is to understand the underlying process, because when someone is injured in an accident, the first thing they do is they call the attorney. The attorneys don't take cases automatically. They're going to do two things. They're going to see and they're going to ask for the insurance coverage that was provided when you got into the accident or uh, if you receive some sort of insurance information from the opposing party from the person. And, and the second thing, huh? And if you have umbrella insurance? Well, yeah. So that's part of the insurance question, right? Yeah. They're going to ask you underlying is, you know, primary insurance. Is there any secondary insurance, umbrella insurance that you know? The second thing that they're going to do is they're going to run a skip trace. And a skip trace is just a software that you run. Uh, you can type in a person's name. They're going to type in, you know, the defendant's name or your client's name, if you know, and they're going to see what sort of assets are held. Where does this person own property? What comes back in a public record search, right? So if, you know, my name, Christopher Guype, if you typed me into a skip trace, this skip trace would return all of the places that I own property in. Okay. And so when we're talking about protecting your primary residence, protecting your assets, that's where we use things like land trusts um, to help remove you from the public record in order to win the case before the case even starts. Yeah, right. If, 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 yeah, if, if, if I'm going and if I have this, you know, if, if I've done proper asset protection um, in that case, you know, you can head off any potential further litigation, right? If damages aren't that high um, and if the insurance coverage is there, you know, in all likelihood, they're going to leave your personal assets alone and it helps prevent lawsuits and frivolous lawsuits from ever being initiated. Right. Um, and so you can do things such as land trust. There's things called a, a personal residence or, or primary resident shield trust, which we can use to employ um, to better protect your primary residence. And then always, you know, taking advantage of homestead protection wherever it's available. It's free protection, might as well take advantage of it. Um, when it comes to the second question that you asked, You're right, awesome. is, is, you know, how do we, in, in uh, how do we prevent um, loans from being accelerated by transferring them to an LLC? Yep. Um, this is just a shortcoming in the way that the law was originally written. And it was called the Garn St. Germain Act, which is you know the act that allowed, because actually loans used to be called for transferring them into a revocable living trust, right? Garn St. Germain Act changed that. And now you can transfer it into a revocable living trust, but it left out LLCs. Oftentimes, this isn't a lender. This isn't an issue for the lender 99% of the time. 99% of the time, they're not going to care. Um, so long as you continue to pay and you continue to comply with your underlying obligations. If you forget to make mortgage payments, they're going to care. And it's just another excuse and another reason for them to call. But the vast majority of times they don't care. Oftentimes, if you contact your lender, your lender will tell you, yes, we allow it. No, we don't allow it. Um, but even if you don't you know, call and ask the lender, most instances and in most cases, when you make the transfer, so long as you continue to pay the mortgage, these companies have tons of loans to process, tons of loans to service. And at the end of the day, the only thing that they really care about is if this mortgage payment is made on time. And so uh, there is always a risk that you can get the note called. And it's super simple. I actually had one, you know, not happen not too recently. Um, and after explaining it to the lender, they stopped and, and they didn't proceed with accelerating the loan. Because if you actually think about it, when we transfer a rental property into an LLC, it actually improves and protects the lender's position even more. Because now 
right? The lender has the same concerns that the individual does if they're involved in a lawsuit or a car accident or, you know, whatever, you know, if their business is involved, that they're running as a sole proprietorship is involved in some sort of business dispute, employment, you know, whatever it is, and they go and seek to attach their personal assets, that is a problem that now affects the lender's interests because you have a third party seeking to foreclose on a rental unit, right? Or use that rental property in satisfaction for a judgment. And so by placing the property into an LLC, it doesn't change your underlying obligations to repay the loan, but it does better protect the property itself from attacks by third parties that would try to otherwise gain access to it, which again, at the end of the day, only improves the lender's position because the lender just wants to make sure that they're getting paid. And so, you know, nine times out of 10, it's not going to be an issue in of, you know, that 10% of the time where it is an issue. After you explain this with the lender, very rarely do they continue to seek to accelerate the loan. And at, and at that point in time, you still have options. You can always unwind the transaction, rescind the deed, and it's back in your name and it's no harm, no foul. And then you have to kind of think of, okay, is there another option? You know, now we got to go back to the drawing board and see, hey, is there another way to protect this property? Okay. But yeah. That makes sense. That's really good information because that's like a common one that I see. So I want to come back to it, but I have one question before I go back to kind of a summary and a couple more questions is... Um, so let's say it doesn't happen. Let's say you already have these, the bank says, uh, you know, no, nope, we're not going to let you do that. And we're in an environment like we're in today and you would never want to go get a new loan <clears throat> is the next best piece of protection, making sure you have umbrella insurance to help cover the liability above what could happen there. Or, you know, what are the things to think about? Umbrella insurance is actually something we would do before. Yeah. Right. So, so most of my clients, before we even get to the question of, you know, transferring these properties to LLCs, we always want to look at the initial underlying insurance coverage, right? Because good asset protection, there is no way to completely protect all of your assets, right? If I got in a fight with Jeff Bezos, who has unlimited resources to pursue a lawsuit against me, even with the best asset protection in the world, I probably ultimately end up losing. He just yeah. has too much money to throw at the problem. And and I guess going to this question too, like it does make sense for it to be step one because you still have auto, you still have your own home, you still have all these other issues that you have liability above whatever the maximum is going to be where umbrella is going to be, a, I mean, something you, I talk about every single person pretty much that comes in the door. Yeah, and so and so when we're doing asset protection, right? With that in mind, you always a asset protection is an, is has a couple of end goals. One is to minimize frivolous lawsuits that are against you, and two, if we are sued, that we can foster quick and easy resolutions to those cases, right? Because again, if you're sued and if you're on the defending end of a lawsuit, you're having to pay hourly fees at a very steep rate. And how much money do you have to eventually defend these, right? And that's where insurance comes into play. And that was kind of the whole point that I was going to make a, a second ago, right? Is that if I don't have appropriate insurance coverage, I am encouraging the attorneys on the other side to go and to look to enforce those judgments against my personal assets, right? So um, in this particular instance, yeah, making sure you have adequate coverage for the rental unit or the rental property itself, step one. Having an umbrella policy, even better step two, because what we want to do is if there is some form of lawsuit or liability, we want the attorney on the other side to see, okay, he has appropriate insurance coverage, primary insurance coverage, and then he has an umbrella policy. But now they've availed themselves of the legal protections of using various business structures, various types of trusts, that the juice is no longer worth the squeeze to go after the remaining assets. We're going to take the insurance money because the law firms are the ones supporting and paying for the litigation fees to pursue this, that they take the easy money from the insurance company that you, that you provide for and that you pay for every single year, and then they go away. Um, and so you have to have good underlying insurance in order for, you know, asset, in, in order to get the most out of asset protection, right? Because they can't guarantee that you'll never get sued in a lawsuit. But if you do, we want to make sure that the 
your assets, the business is in the best place possible to withstand that lawsuit and to resolve it quickly. And you can't, you can't resolve it quickly if you don't have appropriate insurance coverage. Yeah. Okay. But it, but it also that shouldn't be, yeah. I mean, but I, one other mistake that I see made a lot though, is that people kind of just stop at the insurance. Um, like I have good underlying insurance. I have an umbrella policy and I stop there. That's all of the asset protection that I need. That's really risk mitigation because unfortunately there are always exclusions to insurance policies and even umbrella insurance policies. Um, I've seen several denials of those. Um, and if you have an insurance policy that's denied and you haven't taken affirmative steps in any other of, of the areas, right? You haven't protected the real estate. You haven't availed yourself of the business entities. You haven't set up, you know, some of these asset protection type trusts, such as, you know, domestic asset protection trust or a Cook Islands trust or, you know, slots. Um, I think might've mentioned that earlier or before the call. Um, if you haven't done any of those after the fact and the insurance is denied, then, you know, you're, you're just leaving yourself open and vulnerable for whatever assets they want to pick and choose and collect from. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are really good points. That makes a lot of sense. And I think on the, the real estate thing, the reason why I brought that one up is just because it feels so common. Like every single person comes in with no protection out of, they have no umbrella insurance, they have no LLCs. And if anything, they have all of them inside of one LLC as well. And I mean, I guess in the grand scheme of things, that's better than none, but sure. you know, if you're going to be building a lot of wealth and I mean, if you look, if you've owned these rentals for the last five years, you probably have a ton of equity inside of these rentals too, where you open yourself up to a huge liability risk. Yeah. And, and, and rentals also don't have any homestead protection. So, I mean, yes, 100%, I, I'll agree that having one LLC holding all of the rental properties better than having none, right? Mm -hmm. Because at least at that point in time, if something happens in one of the rentals, you're not going to lose your house. Um, but you are subjecting every single investment property that you own to be enforced in the event that there's a lawsuit at one of Right. And so there's a couple of ways you can do it. I mean, naturally, the most protective strategy, which is always what I'm going to recommend to my client, is you're going to have one LLC to, for, for one piece of property. Right. Um, other clients and in, in the past where that is not economically feasible because they're like, you know, I have 100 different properties. Um, I don't want to pay, you know, 800 times 100 for just the registration fees. Okay. Then at that point in time, you can also take an equity exposure approach. So instead of, you know, having one individual LLC per property, you can have a collection or a portfolio and say, hey, my risk tolerance says I'm willing to risk a half a million dollars, a million dollars per cluster within each LLC. Um, so kind of there's definitely ways to do it. But yes, you know, in, in that scenario, 100%, they're not thinking kind of long term. And, and that's one problem that we see. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of people that I've seen on Twitter who were like, you know, I didn't get my first LLC until I had 20 properties. Well, you're just asking to lose them, right? One bad yeah. accident. One thing that you don't even know about in the property, um, a tox mold exposure case, because there's a pinhole leak behind the drywall in one of your investments. And now someone's really sick and they're really That's sick really for the rest advantage. of your life. That's a um, really good example that I don't think people would think about. I think like, even me, like my head goes to like, okay, somebody slips and falls and hits their head or like a tree falls on the house and somebody gets injured, but not like things that you don't even really have the ability or know how to check for can still cause huge issues. Totally. Um, and uh, and I think a lot of those, those are kind of the easy ones. And I even kind of default to the easy ones sometimes, but there's really nuanced stuff. you know. So there's a, a, a famous court case out of LA where a property owner um, a police officer, a mounted police officer fell over a fence of a property owner and um, there was a lawsuit against the property owner. No liability, no liability for uh, you know two years into the case. And then one attorney decided to check the code for the height that is required for the fence of a surrounding property. Turns out this fence wasn't built to code and was two inches too short. Wow. You went from a case where there's no liability to where now you have a police officer who's a paraplegic on a totally random case. Um, 
And now you have a millions of dollars in judgment. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can't account for. And the idea is, is that by having proper planning, you don't need to count for that. It's one of those things where it's, you know, it makes, uh, it, it creates a immense underlying sense of um, security and, and, and relief by going and availing yourselves of, of legal structures and strategies to ensure that, hey, even if something totally random, some weird freak accident happens, um, it's not going to reset you back to zero. Yeah. Because that's oftentimes the most vulnerable part, part portions, right? If someone like Jeff Bezos, if he's sued or, um, you know, a lot of these people who are worth, you know, billions, Elon Musk, um, if they're sued, it's, you know, another Tuesday and they're totally fine because they've used and they've implemented all of these various legal structures. It's the person who's just starting or, you know, hasn't reached that immense level of wealth to where lawsuits no longer affect you, right? Those clients in the 15 to $20 million range or up to, I would say, um, probably goes a little, little higher than that. But I think at that point in time, they start getting better advice. If where one, advice. if, That's if yeah. realize it. I mean, I'm getting people directly from Twitter that are 25 to 75 million net worth that have never worked with any professional ever. They've just grown a really great business. Like, and those are the ones that are, you know, most at risk, you know, it's, yeah. it's hard, you know, like I said, it's hard to put like a carte blanche number on it, but it's the people who've never gotten any advice, regardless of what their net worth is, where they are one lawsuit away from being reset all the way back to zero. Yeah. Um, one bad lawsuit, or yeah. in some cases it's not bad enough to reset them to zero, but that's when they actually make the phone call to think. And that's when these things become important. It was, Hey, I just had a weird labor law lawsuit against my business that ended up costing me $5 million in fines. Um, you know, how do we fix that? And then that's yeah. when kind of they go and they get the advice on all of these various types of planning that we're talking about. Um, yeah, but we kind of, yeah. I think this goes back to like today we were talking to somebody on Twitter, you and I both were of like, a lot of this comes down to really just self-admitting that you feel like this cannot happen to you. You feel like all of these risks are something that happens to everybody else, but it doesn't happen to you. That's how everybody feels, but also be smart enough to say, even though I think that, let's still protect myself because that ego that, you know, I don't know what it is that drives all of us to believe that like everybody else has these risks, but somehow I don't. You have to have like the humility and also just be smart enough to say, this can happen to me. There's a reason why lawyers exist. There's a reason why insurances exist. It, because these things happen, I do need to protect myself. Like, let, let's listen to the professionals here. Oh, totally. And that, and, and, you know, I know exactly who you're talking about, but it's, you know, it's always interesting because literally everyone who's ever been involved in this situation always thought, oh, this is never going to happen. Every single one you know, of them. I'm young. I'm healthy. I actually just had a conversation with a guy very similar. He started his own fund, you know, uh, two years ago, doing extremely well. He came in. We talked about asset protection planning. We talked about basic estate planning because he didn't have it. Um, didn't have an estate plan. Didn't have life insurance. No asset protection. You know, in this case, you know, we're going to the to the planning and the insurance component, but. Um, you know, fast forward eight months, he just got a terminal diagnosis and he was like, I'm super healthy. You know, this shouldn't happen to me, but you hear it all the time. And it's really no, ex I mean, and I think the way that you put it is um, pretty, you know, pretty amazing in that we still need to have the humility to understand that although the probability of this happening, probably pretty low, we still need to go through and protect ourselves. Yeah. The one thing I will say, and the one caveat that I will put in there is that when it comes to the realm of asset protection, when you are broken, when you don't have any assets, no one wants anything, right? If you're, if you're in a car accident and you don't have any money, um, you may not even get sued in a lawsuit. When you have assets, that is when your risk and your probability of being involved in a lawsuit increases exponentially. Um, and so, you know, that's the one thing I will say is if you're on this upward trajectory in your wealth, the likelihood of you being involved in a, in a lawsuit is going to be higher. Um, yeah. That's probably one thing that scales with your net worth is, is your probability of being involved in a lawsuit. eventually. Definitely. Definitely. Great point. Okay. So we have about five minutes left. Is there anything else that we, we should hit on in this asset protection 
um, conversation that we haven't yet? Um, no, I mean, just apart from a couple of rules of thumb and, and you know, the yeah, one thing I, I will say is that a, a lot of people focus on, uh, how, right. And we talked about that today, right. How do we protect investment properties? How do we better protect our primary residents, businesses, those types of things, right. They get very involved with the strategy, but the strategies change all the time, mm-hmm. right. Um, strategies that we used five years ago, we don't use uh, as much today. Um, and that will likely be the case five years from now because new strategies will come out, new things will be. So instead of focusing on the how, um, I think everyone should spend a lot of time focusing on why and when, right? When you can never start considering asset protection too early. So if you're just starting your side hustle, perfect. Um, you know, look at creating an LLC for your business, right? Very inexpensive way to protect yourself. Um, or you if say- you... Would you say there are some some businesses where that doesn't make sense to do? Like, for example, you, client in California, you know, s- second income, of the family makes a ton of money, spouse just for fun, you know, has a photography business that maybe does $10,000 a year. In that case, is it really worth, is there some small cases where it's like, ah, might not be worth it, there really isn't much of a liability risk there? No. Okay. I would still say get it regard. I mean, even if it's $10,000, right? So in California, um, there are certain businesses that can't operate as an LLC and you got to be a professional corporation or something, but very, you know, I would almost carte blanche say, no, uh, there isn't a reason, right? Because again, even though that the risk of, uh, the probability of being involved in a lawsuit as a photographer is super low. Um, there is still risk, right? So for example, California photographer, if you're having your client go out into the wilderness to take a photo shoot, because that's where they want to shoot, um, you still have to have liability waiver releases, right? Or if your clients want to go shoot uh, on the hills of uh, Laguna Beach on the cliff side, what happens if you have someone fall off the cliff? And now they're looking at you to recover from their assets because the rock was slippery or the foundation wasn't secure, or you said, hey, this will be a super cool looking shot. Let's try this. And then someone gets hurt. Yeah. So in that context, Fair. I would almost say there it is. There's never going to be a situation where you would regret zero. having the protections of a business entity in the lie. You know, there's always a risk of something weird happening. And it's not and like one time you should is big, expensive, costly no. to do these days. No, I mean, there's, you know, a ton of online, different document preparation companies that you can do it for, you know, 300 bucks and then you got to pay the fee. Okay. Yeah. That's going to be better than just simply saying, no, I don't want to pay for it. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to spend the time. I will say um, there is a time where it doesn't always make sense to hire an attorney. So like in that case where she's making that photographer is making 10,000 bucks a year. Yeah. Maybe you don't need to go and get a you know, really good operating agreement established by an LLC, uh, by, you know, a really good attorney, but you should still have one. And yeah, then I if mean, the business grows to a point in time where it makes sense, then you should get that revisited and relooked at so that you are better yeah. protected because yeah. bigger I'll business, op- now you have more exposure. I'll openly admit when we started, we set up an LLC online and had an operating agreement that did there. And then one year in, we paid an attorney to redraft because we're like, Hey, you know, now we know this is working. Things are going to go well. We need different things in our operating agreement. And we had an attorney draft that and redo it knowing more than we knew early on. Like you can always do that. And that totally makes sense. Right. Uh, And, and and so I will say that that's a, in my opinion, a better way to think of it than no, I'm too small, right? Because really everyone's too small until you're not too small. Yeah. And, and then, it's a relative thought. Like to somebody, a $20,000 side hustle is incredible. To another person, they're making millions of dollars in side hustle. And they're like, oh, you know, that's nothing. Like to every, there's always levels to it. Yeah. And it's, you know, and they're equally important to have regardless of the situation, right? Because if you're making millions of dollars and you have a side hustle that's paying 50,000 bucks a year, um, and now you have a lawsuit against the side hustle. And if that doesn't have its own protection, then now you're going and they're enforcing that judgment against your millions of dollars. Yeah. And so, you know, all, you know, always 
in my opinion, you can never start looking at asset protection too early. Um, and then, you know, remembering why you need it. Unfortunately, we live in kind of most litigious time period ever. Um, more lawsuits are being filed every single year. And as you accumulate more assets, you become a bigger target for these things. And sure. so uh, by keeping in mind when and why you need asset protection, I think the how will always resolve itself, right? You'll be able to go and you'll be able to figure out or hire someone who can tell you exactly the best way possible to protect your assets, right? Because domestic right. asset protection trusts were amazing um, 10 years ago. And then there was some bad case law that came out. And so they're a little less amazing in certain situations. Um, and, you know, that's going to continue to develop as the laws change and as some of these, you know, more advanced, you know, we didn't get a, a ton into the advanced strategies, but, um, you know, I think this will be a really good kind of palatable um, introduction as to why people need it and when they should start deploying it. And then, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely love this. I think this was a great conversation. I think let's do the advanced one. Let's pencil it sure. in maybe late, like in a quarter to come back and say, you know, everybody go listen to this, but now let's take it a step further. Cause you know, for a lot of people, they've never even heard of asset protection other than like basic insurances. So we have to start with like the, how, why the big risks. And then we could talk about some of the better tools down the road. So Chris, man, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this time with us. Um, let everybody know where the best places to follow you are. Yeah, best place to follow me is going to be on Twitter, um, Christopher Guype, uh, and um, also GuypeLaw.com is where you can find me if you kind of want to ask any follow-up questions. Those are always going to be the two best places to find me. But thank you for having me on. I, I enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, I'd be happy to kind of do a part two of this, right? I think today we laid the foundation. It would be cool to get into some of the the funner, I guess, uh, aspects of, of what we use and the various tools, but yeah, yeah. it was awesome. We'll thank do, you. We'll do that for sure, man. And again, appreciate the time and everybody. Thank you for listening. We will see you back next week. 